If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. As we approach the midterm elections, you are hearing more and more about democracy being under attack and the fact that democracy is on the ballot. These are not empty words in a campaign speech, lies about election fraud and insurrection. There have been serious assaults rained upon American democracy the last couple of years, and we wanted to talk about the state of democracy in the United States. So we caught up for a wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Susan Liebel. She is a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. So to start, a a very simple question. In your opinion, how healthy is U.S. democracy? Wow, that's quite the starting question, Matt. it's, It's hard to overstate that the United States is at a form of crossroads, that the the way that we evaluate countries' democratic health, and we've been doing this for decades, is to look at whether or not elections are carried out in particular ways, whether uh, judges' rules are followed, et cetera. And what we're seeing is that according to those indicators, American democracy looks less healthy. So we have some sort of objective neutral groups that are evaluating all countries in the world. And we can see that the United States is having problems, particularly around this question of elections. The extent to which it's a crisis and experienced as a crisis is, I think, obvious. We have a very polarized country and we're having trouble doing some of the work that would normally be done because of the distraction of major institutions like the Justice Department pursuing something that in a normal year they would not have to pursue. No American president has ever left office, for example, taking papers. Somebody like Eisenhower, when he was writing his biography, would come to these archives and be in a room and look at a document and leave it there and leave. So we've had processes in the past and just we're seeing the institutional norms crumble and to fight for them to remain has taken a lot of work. To that point, I would say one of the things kind of in the the positive column at this point is the American democracy has been through a lot the last two years. Obviously, the insurrection, the constant pushing about, you know, stolen elections that are lies and stuff like that. And we've weathered the storm to this point. We could argue that, you know, different institutions are in different levels of distress and stuff like that. But the fact that the democracy is still kicking after the last couple of years, I think really says a lot about American democracy. It's so hard at this point to define what kicking means. So on the one hand, you can be optimistic and say, well, we're still here. Courts are still functioning. In fact, the election did go forward, you know, despite an insurrection, despite members of the government saying that we should try to Uh, change the rules during the election cycle. Despite all of that, the person who did get the votes is in. So we we could see that optimistically. I would say that my greatest cause from concern at this point comes from the midterm elections. So now, for the first time, we're seeing election deniers on the ballot who are 
part of their platform is standing against the democratic rules that have been in place for decades. I, I think that's cause for concern. I think that uh, you know, the Democrats did something I would consider to be problematic, which was to back some of those election deniers because they thought that it would be easier to run against an extremist candidate rather than a moderate Republican. And that probably is good for party politics, but it's not particularly good if election deniers are elected and therefore change the system to make it even more complicated to count votes or to register who actually won. One of the things that I have found interesting over the last few weeks is we've started to see some polling that showed that threats to democracy or concerns about democracy were like at the top of voters' checklists for things they were going to vote on in the midterms. And that's incredible because it seems like a lot of people have been sounding the alarm about the state of American democracy for a while. And it gets people like us to talk, but it doesn't resonate with the average people. What does it tell you when you start to see stuff like that show up in random polls uh, about what people are concerned about? I, I would guess it, it it's good news in the idea that people are paying attention and maybe more and more people are understanding just how fragile this all could be. Well, I think many of the polls are picking up on a frustration in the American people. So it's a fear and a frustration. There's a fear that democracy is under threat. There's a frustration that the two-party system doesn't seem to be functioning and, and passing the kind of legislation that the people want. So those two things go together. I'm not as willing as perhaps you are to jump on that NBC poll and how it was framed. If you look at how journalists are sometimes presenting the data, somebody like Pew will say public trust in government near historic lows. That's, that's their tagline. But if you look at the data that they're presenting, and that's public trust that goes back to the Eisenhower administration, you can see that this lack of faith actually starts happening. It's, it's well in place by the end of George W. Bush's presidency, and it continues through Obama's presidency. So like, if you're actually looking at the line from Eisenhower as it drops down, it's it's not that it dropped down after the insurrection or even after Trump was elected. So I think this is this is picking up a long-term issue and I think I think we're we're we probably make a mistake if we focus too narrowly on this moment. But that said, there are very particular acts by some parts of the government that are clearly triggering to groups in our society. So registered Republicans do not believe that this election counted all of the votes. They believe that if the votes were counted properly, that Donald Trump would be elected. There's no evidence for that, but we still have a, a majority of American Republicans believing that. So 61%. So what do we do about that? I think we, we need to look at the particular groups and what they might do. Women far more than male identifying people actually think democracy was under attack in the post-2020 election insurrection, et cetera. Now, and it's by a large margin. So 60% of women as composed to 48% of male identifying people think democracy is under attack. Those That group is also uh, concerned about abortion and registering in larger numbers than men. Now, men and women are both concerned about abortion. In fact, 
all people are affected by abortion. All people who can become pregnant, their parents, their siblings, their partners, their children, they're all affected. And actually abortion numbers are very, very close in this country and, and they're not affected as significantly by gender as we're seeing this reaction to the insurrection. So I, I think we do need to pay attention going into these midterms to particular groups that are often ignored who actually are looking at this and experiencing more concern. And I think there has been a sort of underreporting of this turn towards more women registering to vote. And that partially drove the results, for example, in Kansas, where a referendum uh, on abortion went in favor of pro-choice instead of pro-life in a very conservative state. For all the discussion about abortion for decades, all the arguments, bitter arguments, now life changed. When the Dobbs decision, life changed for, as you point out, everybody, but specifically, you know, in a lot of states, trigger laws went into effect and stuff like that. And it, it seems to me that there's just been a lack of people who talk about this to appreciate that people might react to a, a right being taken away, and they might feel that democracy is under much more attack because it's tangible to them. It affects them. They've lost something. So all of a sudden, it's not an intellectual exercise. So when George Floyd uh, was murdered, Trevor Noah had a very famous ep uh, you know, a show in which he, you know, from his home in COVID said, look, this is sort of a fundamental social contract issue. Now, you normally don't hear comedians talking about the social contract. That's something like people like me do in classrooms at St. Joseph's. But the social contract sort of imagines, and it's what our entire system is based on, it imagines all of us kind of standing in an imaginary room and agreeing to give up our complete freedom to rule on ourselves in order to form a political community in which we'll give up some of that, right, in exchange for a certain kind of safety. And I think what we saw in George Floyd was a reaction from Black Americans who said, hey, the social contract is supposed to be at its very basic, protecting my body from somebody putting a knee on my neck and killing me in broad daylight. And I think if you think about the social contract in terms of women, something that we rarely do, you would have to ask, would women sign or any people who can become pregnant sign a contract that says the decision will be made by government. It, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, I know it's a highfalutin way to frame it, but I actually think it's meaningful here. I mean, 61% of Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, and only 37% think it should be illegal in all or most cases. And there is such a small difference between male and female identifying people, 58 and 63, it's tiny. Something has happened. More Democrats have become pro-choice over the decade. That numbers bear that up. But I think something else has happened, that there was a desire on the part of the Republican Party to use abortion as a wedge issue, to, to, to make it a sort of a, we care about life in a particular way, and we're going to define ourselves in this way. And I think what they learned was that when the dog catches the car, there can be consequences that you don't understand. 
And there's been two that are really problematic for American democracy. One is faith in the Supreme Court has dropped significantly. Two thirds of Americans think that these people are just making decisions based on their own party ideology. And that has not been the case before. There's been respect for the Supreme Court. That's that's really problematic. And second, we now have a tension between what the people want, i.e. the policy they would make if they could go in and just be asked yes or no, and the people who represent them. And that is a really, really serious problem for democracy. And the gerrymandering that's been done by both parties, but predominantly by Republicans, means that the people can't get what they want. So if a majority of people in a state want something, they can't necessarily get it because it's the representatives who represent them who will make those abortion laws or those climate change laws or those pre-K laws or those gun laws. And so that is a fundamental problem. And I think we're seeing in these referendums the evidence that if the people can speak directly to issues, they are not in step with what the Republican Party is putting forward. And I don't know that the pollsters have a way of measuring that intensity of feeling, and back to my first point, that women, I think many are feeling that they are somehow have just been removed from the social contract, their equality, their equal citizenship is now under threat. And I and I think that's why we're seeing the Cook Report and 538 start adjusting their numbers because I think they're they're picking up in these state races, in these referenda, evidence that people are very mad and they're registering to vote in numbers that are unheard of with more female identifying people registering to vote in the in the states in which abortion is being made illegal. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Susan Liebel of St. Joseph's University right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. A Philadelphia dentist today was sentenced to 22 years in prison and fined $100,000. This was just unbelievable. You got to understand the genius in Larry. Nobody was doing coke at this point. No one could believe that this highly educated, young, handsome man was this kingpin drug dealer. This is Wolves Among Us, the Larry Lavin story. A documentary podcast from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Listen now on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back continuing our conversation with St. Joseph's University Professor of Political Science, Dr. Susan Liebel on KYW News Radio In-Depth. One of the interesting things is recently in Philadelphia, and it was kind of the impetus for reaching out to you and, and having this discussion, is you heard President Biden basically give a speech on threats to democracy. And he focused on not all Republicans, and he made great pains to separate, but from the MAGA Republicans, election deniers, you know, to that point. And it, it seems to me that's that kind of represents a turning point when you have Joe Biden, who is the institutionalist, institutionalist, like a person who believes in the Senate and believes in norms and stuff like that, to have him not even two years into his presidency, who had championed, I can work with Republicans, and this was one of his selling points on the campaign trail in 2020, to have him put this speech out there uh, was was really, I think it was needed, but it, it's really, it represents a remarkable moment. 
I think this is a rare attempt from a Democrat to control the political narrative surrounding the midterms and actually use language that Americans are likely to understand. You know, in 1994, Newt Gingrich created the contract with America and, and turned the midterms into a referendum on the future of the country. And I think Biden is trying to turn what's usually called a midterm election, like the most boring term you can think of, into a two-part referendum. He, his speech was saying like, I want a referendum on democracy and I want a referendum on policy. And so he, he re-narrated everything that the Republicans have been saying. He re-narrated the uh, election deniers and that the threat came from Biden being president. And instead he said, look, there's real Republicans and they should be respected. And then there's this other group of people. They're MAGA Republicans, and you have to reject them as violent extremists and semi-fascists. So that was like his part one. His second one was that there's an agenda, a Republican agenda that is actually destructive of democracy, whereas the Democratic agenda is preserving democracy. And then he snuck in that that is also linked to a set of issues, social security and gun violence and the right to choose and climate change and universal pre-K and restoring child tuition tax credits and making you know prescription drugs affordable and forgiving student loans. And he wrapped that all into this term, soul of the nation, even though this isn't an argument about morality or religion. But, you know, he's doing something that people do in American politics. You want to mobilize people using a language that's simpler. You know, my students were watching uh, uh, President Trump's 2016 inauguration and Biden's 2020 inauguration. And one of their comments was Trump speaks in a language that's simpler. Biden's is more complicated. They're making very similar claims about unity, but they're making them differently. And here, I think you saw Biden, as you say, moving out from behind the, we need to work with everybody, you know, institution, institution, to saying like, no, we don't need to work with everybody. We only need to work with the real Republicans who are part of democracy and the people who are trying to destroy democracy through violent means. We actually don't need to talk to them. We need to condemn them. And that was a huge step for him. One of the things that drives me nuts, specifically about political media, is the almost fetish for the both sides of things. And in quote-unquote normal times, when you're talking about tax policy, when you're talking about, you know, energy policy, like, I get it. And I understand it's kind of the pillar of being nonpartisan is to present both sides. But I think you can only do that when both sides are acting in good faith and when both sides are being serious about what's being discussed. You see so many people presenting obvious bad faith actors telling outright lies or distortions and presenting that as one side of an argument. Therefore, they give credibility to that argument because it's being presented by people that, well, you know, politician X said this, politician Y said this, we're not going to tell you what to think. We're just going to tell you to decide. And that's not really the role. The role, you know, I've heard people use this way to describe it. If 
one person says the sky is blue, the other says the sky is orange. It is not your job to say that this is what these two people said. It's to open the window and look outside and tell people, yes, the sky is blue. I think that's a big problem with democracy is you present this and that kind of opens the door to all these other things, conspiracy theory, stuff like that, because it's not stamped out. It's kind of presented as, well, possible. I agree that both sidism is not benefiting the American people. It is not educating them so that they can make good decisions in jury boxes or in in polling booths. I think that, you know, since the advent of cable news, we've moved away from a kind of a agreed upon narrative. So, you know, 40 years ago, if you tuned in Dan Rather and Peter Jennings, they're all they're saying almost exactly the same thing with just a couple of different pictures and a little different interview. But for the most part, that is the news. And were CBS or NBC or ABC or PBS to just you know go off the script, that would have been news because there would have been a comparison. It would have been like, why did they say this when it wasn't it wasn't true? And it would be a lot easier to 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 note that for people. And in many ways, the incentive for those networks was to find a way to differentiate themselves within a narrative that was pretty much the same. But with the advent of cable news, what we have is people picking and choosing the brand of news that they prefer, something that leans in more towards a particular ideology or party or subject. And so what that means is that there isn't such a, there is no one script and people can tune in and get information that pleases them, that suits them, that doesn't challenge them in any way. And we are not schooling people. There are some public schools that have put this into place. And in fact, I believe the Parkland students who was so effectively uh, challenged the narrative um, after the shooting were educated to do this. In other words, can you make people educated consumers of news such that they can see the problems that when they look at a graph, they, they can see that the headline is actually not borne out by the data. I, I don't think that we currently have a way of addressing this as a nation of what, what will we do about our incomplete educations. And even the most educated of us, I know I'm guilty of this, try to create a Twitter feed or try to read newspapers that represent different ideologies but it's very, very difficult not to end up in an echo chamber in which you're hearing only what you want to hear. You know, American Republicans are not stupid. They're not dumber, but they believe something that's false. Why is that the case? It is because the media that they watch has told them that and the public officials have confirmed it. And so I would say this is a marriage between the public officials and the press, because were public officials to all be saying like, well, that wasn't true, then I think the media would have a harder time of putting forward those lies. But instead, they have guests who will come on and say the election was stolen. And so I think that's part of the problem. You could make the argument whether these people should be allowed a platform. That's where I think is really one of the big failings, that there are no consequences to this. Look, there are things that we can check upon. And what you're demanding from journalists 
is to be educated and to be ready in the moment to say, that's false. You know, we do, we need higher standards. Uh, I do believe in hearing from both sides, but I think that to do that, you have to be prepared to ask tough questions and not, not simply let the answer go, but to have the background, which requires work to follow up. And it's interesting because I think somebody could listen to our discussion and they would say, these people are all over the place. They're talking about the abortion. They're talking about the media, like, uh, you know, but it all kind of ties back to that idea of democracy and all of these things that seem to be getting wildly out of whack are kind of just an offshoot to the problems we're seeing in American democracy at one level or another No. And we've had bad journalism before. I mean, the word yellow journalism doesn't come from the 21st century. It comes from earlier. And, and we've certainly had corrupt politicians and we've certainly had insurrections. I think what's very particular about this moment is that a combination of something very new, social media, a willingness for people to put out false information in that form that is consumed so widely by Americans and a loss of standards as to what it is the responsibility of higher elected officials like senators to say when something is false or true, even if it affects their party negatively. And so I think it's been some time that people have thought of the Senate as a body in which there's more cooperation, in which the terms are longer, in which you don't have to put your finger to the wind, in which you can say some negative things about your own party or even positions that you've held previously. But we are talking about since 2016, a complete breakdown in those rules. And I, I think journalists are not alone in struggling to figure out in a very new environment how it is that we can communicate information so that we can have the kind of debates that will show that American democracy can thrive. Given everything we've discussed, optimistic about the future of democracy, pessimistic, or wait and see? I'm somebody who sees the flaws but really wants us to struggle for a more perfect union. So for the moment, I think that these two speeches by Biden and Trump have provided a contrast. And we see this increase in registration from predominantly women. And I think that that shows that maybe government can go too far and they will be punished. And perhaps in seeing that there is a relationship between what the government does, even the Supreme Court, this remote unelected body can be ultimately reversed by the people, might at least allow some of these young people to see that their vote is not for naught and they need to step forward and make this country better and more solid in terms of its democratic norms. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.